do 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 Pam 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 do 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 As you might have noticed, I am away from home and do not have my setup and cannot play the theme music. So I will not bore you with that for any longer. This is also a really weird time of day for me to do this. I completely appreciate that. I'm sorry for those of you who have normal jobs and cannot tune in in the middle of the day on a Friday. I know, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I ended up getting into Chicago later than I anticipated last night. I visiting a friend that I haven't seen since before the pandemic. And when I last saw her, it was at her wedding in the beginning of 2019. And now she has one and a half children. She's like just dating the second one. I have met neither of them. And so I decided to spend time just chatting and catching up last night instead of forcing myself to get on a call. But I did want to give people an opportunity to check in, not just about um, uh, Thursday's episode, which of course got into all of the nitty gritty about what's been going on in the LA City Council. I was so glad to be able to get one of the journalists who broke the story. If you somehow missed it, audio anonymously was put uploaded to Reddit. This journalist found it and reported on what it was, which is about an hour plus of call recordings from a meeting that happened last October of the LA City Council in which Mary Martinez uh, and Kevin DeLeon in, in particular made or co-signed a lot of racist uh, statements that were really covered. The racism of it all was like pretty heavily covered in the media. So for example, uh, Mary Martinez made disparaging remarks about another city council member's child. The city council member is an, a white man and a gay couple and his son Racism. Um, say that they used them kind of like as accessories. The child was supposed to behave, and that you know she should get her hands on the child, and she needed a beat down, all these kinds of things. Of course, she just had a monkey climbing all over the parade float. So you know, all of that stuff is obviously sensational and completely understandable. Like people would focus on it, but a lot of what I found to be more interesting was what those, where, where those resentments were coming from, which is these near power plays that were happening in the zero-sum politics that's happening in the area where there seems to be some resentment between Black and Latino uh, representatives in the area and the feeling that the, the white city council member was an ally with the Black city council members and was helpful to them in advocating what Mary Martinez obviously thought was a disproportionate amount of power in the city compared to what the Latinos have in their population density in the city of LA. So I was so happy to have two guests, um, Rachel Reyes uh, and Don Colt, come on and get into the depths of what is actually happening in the political perspective of the city. So if you haven't already watched that, that whole episode is up obviously for free over at Bad News Nation, so you can go to it wherever you listen to podcasts, as per usual. Other things that have happened are that uh, after like my radar on Wednesday. I worked hard on it. It was about the, uh, the Republican plan to fight inflation, which is to cut Social Security and Medicare to raise the age eligibility ages of those programs to uh, 70 and 80 to 20 respectively, which I think is an important story. Eric Levitt over at uh, 
York Magazine uh, wrote a really great article for me because they come up with plans. Our plan is to I do think that Zillion is doing uh, to force the issue in the fall, um, and we're going to hear more about it when that happens. But I, of course, hear from Security Solutions that little to none of the Democratic Party response seems to have been to highlight what is actually going to happen when there is a Republican-controlled House and Senate. So here we are. Um, so I did a radar on that. As often is the case with radars that I find to be substantive, but not especially like emotional or gimmicky, it didn't do very well in terms of clicks on YouTube. The third phase radar, apparently, I resonated with people. It was one that was kind of more difficult to write. I procrastinated all day, and then I rattled it off at midnight right before I went to sleep. And it was a kind of honest assessment of my frustrations with the Democratic Party, talking about the business with the letter and the progressives and how that really feels like just another level of frustration for a lot of folks um, who were hopeful, had a glimmer of hope earlier this year. And then the CCPA issued this letter um, detailing all of the, um, uh, sorry, very mild, mild, mild push for diplomacy uh, between Ukraine and Russia and hope for an end to the conflict. Um, it completely validated all of uh, Biden's foreign policy choices. It didn't call for diminishing aid like even one penny. It seemed like a milk toast letter, but something that's in the right direction, that something that's perhaps responsive to all of the protests that have been happening at squads and big events. Over the past week or so, it felt like forward movement, and of course, immediately the next day there was backlash from the establishment. People who had signed on to the letter threw the letter under the bus. There was a revision of the letter, a clarification that was issued, and then within 24 hours, a retraction of said letter. And you guys should definitely tune in to next Monday's episode. It's not a subscriber, you're going to want to be, because next Monday, um, I had it out with one of the people who was just in the withdrawal of the letter. Uh, so, uh, Cicerone, whose name always comes on, I think I just did it again. Obviously, he's been on Bad Faith Podcast before. He came on to talk about nuclear proliferation and the threat of nuclear war earlier in the crisis. He's someone from the Bernie Foreign Policy camp who, you know, I respect and really like to hear from. But he is in a, you know, pretty strict disagreement with the letter with a really bad idea. And I saw him getting into it with Aaron Montan, who's obviously on the internet, so I invited him on. And we had we recorded a really, really terrific episode yesterday that I'm very much looking forward uh, to you all hearing. Um, so why did I bring that up? So all of that happened. So yeah, I talk about my frustration with how the Democrats handled that situation. I talk about how my disappointment kind of started with Obama, the way that so many people um, did, and that by the time the end of the Bernie Sanders Hillary campaign came around, it became pretty clear that progressives weren't going to get us there, not to mention all of the ways that the narrow margin in the House meant that progressives could obviously um, hold the entire Biden agenda hostage, something that Nancy Minema had done and was doing much too so. So now a lot of people are flailing, facing down these midterms, which don't look especially promising. It's hard to be that invested, even though there are real you know, rights and issue, policy issues at stake if Democrats don't win. It's like a weird dissonance to feel like, yeah, you don't you don't want things to get worse, things definitely can get worse, but it's so hard to want to be positively responsive to a party that has been so disrespectful of us as independent-minded progressive voters. I can't even open my inbox right now because Beto is more knocking at people's thirsty in the inbox 
and I can barely even filter through it and find what real mail I have. So I express all my frustrations in this in this radar, and it seems like a lot of you have those frustrations as well. And so I love to hear from you all about that. Yep. So it would be on the front of your mind as per usual. Let's start taking calls and questions on your mind. Hello, Bree. Hey. We we. We can't hear you. It sounds like your mic's stuck in the sweater. Seriously? Yeah, like not hardly at all. Yeah. Now, now that was better when you said seriously. Oh, I think it was just that my finger was over. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah. so all of what I just said was illegible? Oh, pretty much, yeah. All right. I mean, yeah. This, we, I, I mean, I put my ear up real close and was like straining to almost hear it. But and I heard you talk about the radar and uh, that that part, you know. <laughs> okay. Well, why didn't anybody, anybody tell me in the live chat? We did. I see nothing in the live chat right now. Zero messages in the live chat. Oh, that's because we're the beta testers, the the call in beta boys. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh wait, it just refreshed. Goodness gracious, I'm so irritated. <laughs> Oh, it's all right. You know, it's a technical glitch. It's bound to happen. All right. Well, let's just push through, Anthony. My apologies. What's on your mind? Oh, man. Hey, well, you know, I I wanted to call in the last couple of times, and especially I'm glad I got to this time early in the afternoon. That's great for me. Um, Oh, good. uh, When Katie was on and uh, all that, because she was talking about getting fired at the Hill, and it was in relation to... uh, something said by a squad person mm-hmm. in Congress. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, I've since said something to her about it on her own uh, useful idiots. I said, I think you need to you know, hold them more to account, you know, not really be buddy, buddy with them. And uh, I think she, she, she kind of disagreed, but then I mean, it's, they've, I think they've melted down in the last week. It's a little funny to see just like, I didn't even expect Ilhan Omar video popped on Twitter the other today or yesterday. Yeah. And, they're, they're melting down. They're ridiculous. It, it, it makes me kind of sad. Has everybody seen the Ilhan Omar video? She got um, protested again. I'm not sure if it, it was by the same people uh, or different people than, um, was it Ho- Jose Vega? Jose Vega keeps posting all the clips, but I don't think that he's the one that's protesting all of the folks. He definitely did the AOC one, the first AOC one, and the uh, Bowman one. But anyway, here I don't know if you guys can hear this. You're supposed to be a progressive Democrat, anti-war, anti-war. Eighty billion to Ukraine is not anti-war. Ukraine is killing its own citizens in the Donbass. We are helping little children like me that have been helped. So unless, unless, listen, listen. Unless you have not been paying attention to what is happening, there are millions of Ukrainians that have been displaced. There are piles of bodies that are being found in mass graves. There are little children whose lives are being lost. By Zelensky! Yeah, by Zelensky and the Donbass. But unless you are someone like me that has been that child, you do not get to tell me what my votes mean and how I get to vote in supporting people who support the people. So 
so that happened and Ilhan Omar quote tweeted the video saying, I'm sorry, you all aren't anti-war protesters. You are dangerous propagandists who are literally making a mockery of the anti-war movement. I have never had the pleasure of responding to Russian flag emoji, emoji, ridiculous internet disinformation in person before. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, and there's been an, people fighting back and forth about this, about whether she is unfairly weaponizing her background as having herself. Um, people are asking. Uh, hey, go she, ahead. Yeah. she absolutely is weaponizing her background. That's Kamala. I was that little girl. I mean, shut the hell up. And uh, freaking, uh, we're, we're talking about Ukraine in 2022 and not uh, freaking Somalia when you were there. Thank you, Ilhan Omar. And all your, uh, you know, videos of Biles bodies piling up. If you weren't getting your news from the New York Times, you'd see that they're probably the Ukrainians piling up the bodies like in that sickening fashion. So. You should have thought of that before, you know, when you were impeaching Trump over sending money to Ukraine way back when, money and weapons. But it's it's just a joke to me. Uh, she has no defense. I mean, the dude's absolutely right. I mean, it, it's really serious. The evidence of the, like, I call it Nazism. That's what it looks like to me. It's just ridiculous. They don't yeah, have a leg to stand. My, my issue is like, and I, I said this in the very first Ukraine episode that I did on Bad Faith with Matt Duss. I was like, I'm not, like, if you want the, if you are saying that as a leftist, you don't believe in America being the world's policeman, then you have to be able to, art and, and you also know how often humanitarian crises are used as a justification for imperialism. You then have to. You, it is incumbent on you to be able to articulate why it is that America is getting involved in a given situation, given all of the horrors that exist around the world right now, to justify why we should believe you when you say it's for humanitarian reasons and not these other reasons. Because if it's just about saving the children, I promise you that $80 billion could save a lot of children a lot more effectively all over the world, more so than just buying a, a bomb and sending it to Ukraine. And people, Max Blumenthal resurfaced, I'm sure other people did as well, but Max Blumenthal resurfaced this tweet from Ilhan Omar from the beginning of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, in which she was sounding a lot like the left is sounding right now. She said, the consequences of flooding Ukraine with billions of dollars in American weapons, likely not limited to just military-specific equipment, but also including small arms and ammo, are unpredictable and likely disastrous, especially when they are given to paramilitary groups without accountability. So people are like, where is that Ilhan Omar? What happened to that woman? Well, I don't know. They they really don't have any credibility because otherwise they'd say it's about sovereignty and uh, democracy. But we know Ukraine's not sovereign without the United States. So there's that. And um, democracy, well, they're not democratic. Uh, they, you know, ban their opposition parties and they assassinate journalists and all that bad stuff. So. I mean, it's just pathetic. It's I'm not ashamed to say I'm like, oh, okay, I see what Russia is doing. You know, I'm not in Russia. I can't support Russia in any way. Me supporting Russia would mean nothing. But I totally understand why they had to do what they had to do, especially if you saw a report by the super governmental agency, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, 1,100 explosions three days before Russia invaded in the Donbass. Uh, where were, you know, weren't United States, we wouldn't tolerate 1,100 explosions in, you know, right over the border in Tijuana. So the case is closed on, on the squad and the, they're a joke. Ilhan Omar is a mockery. Thank so you. 
I mean, oh, well, I did vote. I voted for Green and another third party working class where there was such a candidate. And where there wasn't, I wrote in Mickey Mouse. What do midterms even mean to you at this Then I voted for the proposals, you know, abortions on our ballot and stuff. So, I mean, voting, I don't even care. But yeah, I've been heckling. I told you I heckled the squad back in July and more recently. And I engage on a. So these horrible local radio shows like NPR, I call in and I totally differ with them. They're just terrible liberals on NPR, but it's a little something I do. And C-SPAN, too, I'll call in and just kind of argue with them. Tom Hartman, he banned me. So. Uh-huh. I want to see some of those clips. Can I surface some of those clips for us in the chat so we can listen to the work that you've been doing out here in the world? <laughs> Thanks for calling in, Anthony. All right, Jonathan, what's on your mind this afternoon? Okay, I want to do an analogy. Please. Okay, there's a there's a tree in the forest, right? Mm-hmm. And let's uh, say it's the Douglas fir for you uh, Twin Peaks fans out there. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> and this tree is endemic into its environment. That means like present in the system, the ecosystem in this case, right? So that's endemic. It's just there. But systemic is a much stronger claim. It means like if you were to go there and totally eradicate every single Douglas fir down to the last seedling, over enough time, it wouldn't matter because that system would reproduce that thing. Either, mm. you know, either it would quickly adopt an invasive species that's almost the same thing. Something there would morph into what is almost indistinguishable from the junglist fur, or the you maybe all the different pieces of the different organisms would recreate its effect in the aggregate. That mm. or it, the thing would collapse. So like it's a this is when people get nervous because they're like, oh, he's if he's saying systemic is a stronger claim. He's going to try to say that systemic racism doesn't exist. No, but being really precise can tell you why it does exist. And mm. because if it's precise, then systemic in this way is like now let's go from trees to New York City police officers. You have. uh Imagine now every single one of them, you replace them with a bodhisattva. And let's just say they're literally colorblind, too. Like, they can't even tell what you are. Is a bodhisattva but the system, kind of tree? No, it's, a, it's a, like a, it's a Buddha, but, not, but one that's not, like, it's still a, a corporeal Buddha that walks around and helps people because it decided not to transcend because it has too much compassion for other humans to, to reach nirvana. So, uh, okay. yeah, the Bodhisattva is like a Buddha, it's, but it's totally selfless. It's, it's about, the, it's about as colorblind and, and selfless as, as a human be. So that, that's, and that's why I'm like, yeah, literally colorblind too. So you have all these, say they're not, so they're not racist. They don't see color. And, but the system would still disproportionately squash people of color in a negative way, even without them. Like that's, and so when, Going back to Eric Garner, when somebody was choked to death for selling individual cigarettes and the people were like, no, it's a systemic racism. And then they quickly jumped to endemic racism in the, in the mind, in the, in the unconscious of the individual human being. And they completely ignore the system, which is like the laws that he broke and who those laws are for. 
Mm-hmm. And this is like, oh, you're just being semantical. Well, A, everything in language is semantic, so whatever. And B, mm-hmm. it matters because the solutions are different. An endemic mm-hmm. solution to a problem looks like requiring all the employees of my local Target supermarket to get hire a babysitter and do an unpaid commute to Cedar Falls where they're going to attend a diversity inclusion seminar from some 20-year-old making a million dollars doing a national <laughs> tour by Target because they want to look woke. That's an endemic mm-hmm. solution, whether you're talking about Target or, or cops. A systemic solution is actually much simpler. You take a pen and you draw a line through a shitty law. You just press delete. Mm-hmm. Like what law, what law did he break? He's selling individual cigarettes. Who's mm-hmm. that? He, he took a, he took a, something out of a package and sold the lower uh, like unit at an uptick. That's what the package came out of a carton. The carton mm-hmm. came off of a, of a box, which came off of a pallet, which came off of a truck. It's like mm-hmm. he's just doing what everybody did. That's capitalism, baby. And he's being punished mm-hmm. for doing the thing he was taught to worship. But we don't talk about the system, about mm-hmm. systems, about mm-hmm. laws. It's, oh, defund the police. How about change the laws so they're not, they don't have this mandate to go be shitty all the time? Mm-hmm. And that's Los Angeles, too. Like you're criticizing these people, and it's like, oh, this is a shitty person. It's like, yeah, that's a shitty person. Did you talk about their platform yesterday, though? I didn't hear it. Like, there are all kinds of shitty people. But the, the endemic shittiness of individual human psyche is, is really getting in the way of the examination of systems. Yeah, I mean, and, I, I agree. I mean, that's why I, I wanted the – I think we had to talk about the racism up top. But the point of the episode was to talk about the actual kind of power grabs, the power struggle that's happening between groups in the city council and the kind of – emptiness of a politics that presumes that these representational politics are going to result in any benefits for these communities and how they still feel like for whatever reason that it's a zero sum game and that, you know, the only reason we're having these racist statements about how, Oh, there's too many, you know, Mexicans in Chinatown or they're, you know, they're, they're the, this, this guy's aligned with the blacks is because there's a sense of competition for limited resources, whether or not that that is real and it's funny, I talked about this a little bit with one of the guests before the other one had logged in. And I didn't want to drag them into my own personal, you know, kind of away from the facts of what happened into my own ruminations. But I agree with you. Some, there's, there's a part of me that hears and what Nuri Martinez said, the kind of talk that you hear when black people are amongst themselves, that when, when racial groups are amongst themselves talking about how we feel it's unfair that some other group got this and why isn't anybody paying attention to my issue. And there's a part of me that I won't go as far as saying empathy for her and what she said or for what uh, Kevin DeLeon said, but there's something that seems completely unremarkable about it. Um, and it almost irritates me that there was this media cycle that everyone was kind of breathlessly like, oh, can you believe she said this about this young black boy? Like, it's not good. I want to be really clear. It's not good that she said that, but it is par for the course. I mean, I hear black people talking about kids that are adopted, black kids that are ta- adopted by white people and how white people don't know how to raise black children and white people don't know how to have discipline and white, white parents are too permissive and stuff like that all the time. And so I, I agree with you that there is a, a hyper focus on these people being bad for being caught saying what everybody does instead of interrogating why it is that people feel like there's so much competition between groups that are ostensibly very similarly situated in terms of being alienated from power and, and resources in this country. 
Yes. I think I, and and that's why it, it, it gets most under my skin when I hear it uh, on bad faith or, or whatever. I think I said to somebody on a call in yesterday, I was like, oh, it doesn't matter how many people die in Burkina Faso in Ukraine or how many people get thrown into solitary confinement right here in the U.S. It could be 100, could be 1,000. But and this is before you just said that Ilhan Omar thing. This was a day or two ago. I was like, if Ilhan Omar and Tucker Carlson got into a flame war on Twitter, Brianna would not could would like the sure as the sun rises, you just got to say something about it. You got to say something about it. And then we're going to have a call in about it. And everybody's going to call in and throw their two cents in talking about what about nothing. You know? Yeah. It, it bothers me. I know it well, sounds like, what do you think we should jabbing be you, about? But... Well, I, I, I understand. Systems. <laughs> but be, yeah. be more specific. Like if you could pick the topic of today's call in, what would it be? Well, I could just keep going with the one I already started about how like the, the you can change the law. Like, uh, th- what did I talk about? The law against selling individual cigarettes. Like, who is that for? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's for mm-hmm. poor people. That's because mm-hmm. that's a microtransaction in which the government has not reached their hands to take a little piece of it out. Mm-hmm. Why is the tax code even like that? Why don't you just have one tax? It's a wealth tax. Why do you, because they need you. Every step you take has to involve a tax. Every step you take has to require dollars so that you need dollars so that you go out and compete for dollars because it keeps the cost of labor down. Mm-hmm. That's the system. It keeps the cost of labor down. That's like all identity politics, all divide and conquer, all uh, Jim Crow was to keep the cost of labor down by present, preventing solidarity. That's why they want to have kids and uh, with no no abortion, but then not give them child care because you want more desperate people to keep the cost of labor down. That's why the Fed is having the repo facility pay out uh, $43 million a day. So they don't, you know, like they want to keep the cost of labor down. It's all about keeping the cost of labor down. This is the system of all systems. That's money. Yeah. And that's I, all I, I think- really want to talk about. That's all I ever yeah, talk I that's, about, really. That's a great subject for a radar because I do think that sometimes talking about things like that um, are more compelling to a conservative who might not necessarily want to hear about, you know, capitalism is evil. You know, it put put in that sort of those sort of terms like socialism is good. If you talk about you know specific examples um, like the Lucy cigarette example, I think that's I think that's an excellent one, and I'm going to give that. I'm going to put that in my notebook. My Slack uh, read. Sun Tzu was a military strategist. That was how his title is translated. So that's what I'm going to do to, to talk about the difference between strategy and tactics. Like, w- you're an excellent tactician, and you're even a great fighter one-on-one. But strategy, what does he say? He says, don't let your enemies dictate the terms of the engagement. Don't let the enemy choose your battlefield for you. Don't engage them when they make you fight while the sun is in your eyes. Like strategy is what you do before you even arrive there. Tactics is what you do once you arrive. You're like, oh, do I flank left? Do I flank right? Do I go spears up the middle? How many arrows do I have? That's tactics. Strategy, you know, like, yeah, you, you got, you gear a fighter and you got great tactics, but your strategy, the whole left strategy is fuck all. You don't have one. You, I've never seen you not take the bait ever. The bait well, is taken respect, 100% of the time. With all, with all due respect, Jonathan, this is also a show that covers the news. And I think it is newsworthy to talk about the fact that there is absolutely no progressivism on in a, in a major U.S. city that's being railroaded in, by both left media like TYT and mainstream media for poverty problems, homelessness, 
drug use in the streets, and it's being attributed to the left at the same time that there is evidence we now have on tape that these are racists infighting and trying to claim power for themselves personally that has absolutely nothing to do with progressivism. At the same time, they're trying to marginalize people like uh, legitimately progressive. And I think that both from a strategic approach, like me covering the story is not taking the bait. It's taking an opportunity to hijack the public's focus on something sensational and bring it back to the fundamentals and, and the um, endemic issues that I think that you're right to point out. So all due respect, I don't think this is at all taking a bait and I don't think I take the bait. I think that I'm actually being very strategic and hijacking the public interest. However, I think what a lot of people do when they're mad that people are talking about things they don't want them to talk about is huff and puff in the corner with their arms crossed and say, well, why won't anybody talk about my oh so important egghead big brain issue? Because it's boring. It doesn't relate to anybody and nobody cares. And you have it, to that's have exactly some, right. It is boring. You have to have some that's, respect that's for why. the public. You have to have some respect for the fact that you can't just demand that everybody care about what you care about and figure out how to serve people some broccoli with some cheese on top. Get, get the right combination to get the. I'm trying. If I could make if I could make MMT fun, I would really. I, I'm just not. I'm not that smart. <laughs> like I can't do it. I. I hear you. I know. And I, when I say you, I hope you know enough by now to know I'm, it's always a plural you. I'm not talking about Brianna Joy sure. Gray every time I say the word you. I'm not, sure. But. It's it's a it's an it's a endemic problem in the left media broadly, and it's it's people will cling to a sinking ship if there's nothing else in sight. I feel like so much of the the circular ish, the issue washing machine. You, you, mm-hmm. you see, it's more like watching the dryer, you know, and you see the same thing flow and fall and fall. It's mm-hmm. because you don't know where else to go, and because the language is limited. Like, uh, Paul Girard wrote a book called The Gulf War Never Happened. And he didn't mean that the Gulf War never happened. What he, what he means is something like the, the media event that is the Gulf, what was the Gulf War, took on a life of its own. Like, you could have covered anything before the Gulf War like it was the Gulf War and anything yeah. after. Like, the, when, when the thing started and ended is largely a media creation. Just like there was a George Floyd every week for ye- decades before. And it's like, mm-hmm. why now? Why this one? It's so arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, so the Gulf War never happened. Yeah, I'm saying the supply crisis never happened. In the same vein, it was a media creation to sort of, you can sit there and look and see how all the, all of the price increases went into profits. What's it got to do with supply? Supply nothing. Well, like the I, warehouses minute, are full again. Isn't isn't yeah, yeah, the case that there there was a supply chain crisis? Obviously, COVID happened. Things shut down. We couldn't get a- access to masks and ventilators, and it's still difficult. My my sofa is being delivered next week that I ordered back in May. Like there is a supply chain crisis, but the point is that people actually and there was a Gulf War. Yeah, right, right. So it's not that it didn't happen or these things are like not real, but that they are exploited and exacerbated by the media for various ends. Yeah, and just like even the Gulf War, like even the timing of the battles where it was the first time it didn't happen in Vietnam, but by the Gulf War, like the timing of what happened where was about was a was about how it could be sold on the media, and in the supply chain crisis that you had the people at the ports who owned the ports creating it so that it could be sold. You know what I mean? It's manufactured incident, so to speak. But uh, okay, why was I started talking about? The Gulf War never happened. Yeah, like so. The, all of these things, like everything, all when the tweets drop, when when the when these tapes are released of someone being racist, 
about somebody else's kid on a float in a parade. It's mm. I, I I think it's bait. And what do you think it, the goal I, is? I appreciate I appreciate your think, effort. What do you think released it? What do you think their goal is? I think these things are turning more algorithmic by the day. You know, like who? What about what? It's like it's a it's a monster with sort of a life of its own. It's in the way that when you say something near your phone, it advertises it to you. That doesn't mean there's a person mm-hmm. listening to you. It's a machine. It's like this is what their appetite has been built up for. This is what we've lost the appetite. Like when Russia does its timing, when it invades and where, it's about the American appetite for war being at a low so we don't respond to them. You know, like Syria was a whole thing that they did when right when we came off of this sort of we came out of Iraq and we're just like, oh, we can't do this anymore. Bam, they went into Syria. It's about the American appetite, our consumer appetite and our media appetite. And 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 I I pre, like you're you're right about what you do with it. You're trying to draw you're drawing attention to the right thing. You're taking the incident and going to the systemic better than anyone I know. But what if what if it doesn't matter how prescient and smart and fresh your takes are, because it, it's all been folded in. I know that's he- heavily pessimistic, but what yeah. I said like Zizek said last time, you got to be a pessimist to be an optimist because you got to be realistic about just how monstrous this thing you're fighting against is if you're ever going to succeed against it. Yeah, I think that's completely possible. And I think about that all the time. And um, that's all might be for naught. But I don't know what the alternative is. So we keep doing it. I got to kick you off, Jonathan, before I uh, do uh, what's Harikari, whatever ritualistic so thanks for Japanese letting me suicide because you depressed me so much. <laughs> but I always appreciate you calling in. <laughs> no, we, no, we cannot. Have... <laughs> no, I, I'm obviously, thank you. Keep, but thank you for calling in. Keep the faith. Brian, who is this in this photo? Is this Brian Gumble? Can you hear me? Yeah. Hey, Brian, what's on your mind? Uh, I don't know, but I just know whenever Jonathan calls in, I feel so, like he just makes me question life and, <laughs> What is real? Like I feel like I feel like Morpheus in that scene. Like, what is this real? Like, what is real, Neo? Like, Jonathan secretly works for Zoloft, and he's trying to get us all on antidepressants by making us feel sad on these calls. No, I mean it's good to have people like that, you know, around (laughs) to like I guess I don't know, keep everyone grounded. But uh, as far as the LA thing, I was watching um. This is Revolution podcast with uh, Jason Miles and Pascal Robert. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of making the point you were making about how, you know, if you go into the Black Caucus and listen into their private conversations, there's probably some, you know, out of pocket things being said about different communities. Because, I mean, that's how people, that's how people talk. I mean, we can't mm-hmm. just have rose colored glasses. I mean, mm-hmm. you think about Lyndon B. Johnson and how all the racist stuff he said, but at the end of the day, he still signed the bills for like the civil rights act and whatnot mm-hmm. so it's kind of like i don't want to say a balancing act but you just have to be realistic and uh, uh, be realistic about what people really are and you know i just it is kind of i don't want to say suspect but like jonathan says like why would that leak now and you know what is the end game for all of this it's just it's just it just feels so great well, it was that Kevin Kevin De Leon uh, was in the mayoral race, right? So, but he's not anymore. 
So, like, I'm not sure exactly what the time, like, when he dropped out versus the timing of this tape. But I could see an argument that says, oh, someone wants to knock him out of the race. But if he was already out, and again, it's we should all be very clear. Like, nobody has stepped down over this. Not a single person. There, Nuri Martinez is making a big deal of stepping down from her leadership position. But she's still a city council member. She's just no longer leading whatever the name of her leadership position was. And so actually, I was listening to this Tavis Smiley interview. Tavis Smiley, you guys, if you haven't listened to this or watched this, Tavis Smiley just tore Kevin DeLeon a new one. Did the best interview that I've seen of any of these city council members. It's like delicious to watch. Kevin has nothing to say. And in it, it's clear, though, that Tavis doesn't really understand that... um, Nuri hasn't actually stepped down from anything. So he keeps saying, like, Nuri Martinez stepped down. Are you going to step down, Kevin? And Kevin is clearly trying not to make it clear. Like, he's trying not to throw Nuri under the bus by saying, well, she actually hasn't stepped down. But, like, he also, you know, without doing that, it's hard for him to distinguish that actually he hasn't done anything less bad than what Nuri has done with respect to, like, staying on the city council. So that it's clear from even Tavis, even though he did a really great interview, a lot of people don't realize that there have been zero consequences for anybody for this, which also begs the question, like, what was the point? Yeah, I mean, and again, it's like, even if they do step down, a lot of politics is just about, like, who do you want? Like, who do you like, unfortunately? Mm. Like, a lot of people don't take into the substantive critiques of people's policies and what they're running on or even their character. I mean, I'm here in Georgia with the whole, you know, Herschel Walker versus Warnock debate. And I mean, obviously on merit and on someone like having all their faculties together should be a wash, but people just don't care. It's just what party you like. And I mean, I guess politics has always been that way, but it's just like the bare faces is, is on full display. There's no more, there's no more pomp and circumstance. It's just all out for people to see. And I don't know, everything's just tribal now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me as a leftist, I was attracted to the story in some ways because it is, you know, so, so much of the pushback that we get from liberals is that the liberals are very much invested in the idea that they're good guys. And part of how they justify being the good guys, even when we know they're all of these substantive material policies that they don't fight for, even try to derail, is by elevating the idea that they are kind of um, racially woke and, you know, good to minority groups. And they're the ones who really care and are protecting their rights. So, and, and they also have, you know, representational politics. And so a story like this is a perfect firestorm of representational politics sucks. You aren't actually fighting for the material interest of people, yada, yada, yada. And it, and it helps the left to reestablish or it has the possibility of helping the left to establish that it's the group that has more credibility in this space than liberals do and to shake people away from their belief that like the liberals are the good guys and the Bernie bros aren't the problem. So I, I am attracted to stories like these for, for, for that reason, but it is also bleak because absent the democratic party, the void, the void is huge. And you see the Republicans really capitalizing on this anti-war movement, the Tulsi of it all. And you're watching it all happening like a slow moving train and the Democrats, they just don't care enough to even try to performatively fill that space. You see what happened with the letter, and it felt like, oh, the Democrats are smart enough to know that they're fucked here. The Democrats are smart enough to know that if they lose this anti-war train, it's a problem. You know, I don't know if you saw the Pod Save America interview um, with Bill, what's his name, 
where he was even on Positive America, they're talking about how like there's got to be some kind of peace movement on the left or we're going to be screwed, you know, and yet they still managed to drop the ball. They still couldn't stick the landing on that. That makes me wonder, like, what is their like, what is their end goal? Like, they can't be that um, incompetent. Like, there's no way you're 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 willingly that incompetent. That's I, I don't know, but like, as far as good guys and bad guys, uh, I've, I've that's I don't know how you can look at modern world history and still see things in the black and white. You know, especially like past really World War Two to me was probably like the last conflict where there was a definite good side and a definite bad side but since like the cold war era everything's just been gray like legitimately gray on both sides yeah. so yeah I don't know. yeah i mean I, I can't wait for you guys um to listen to this joe C- cicerone interview i think it's gonna kind of light up the internet i think you guys are really gonna like it because it tees up every single kind of you're a Putin puppet. I mean, he, I, I don't want to, no, actually, that's not fair to him. I don't want to oversimplify his argument, but it, it tees up the conflict between the establishment Democrat view on Ukraine and what the leftists have been saying in a way that sometimes we don't get because most of these folks won't agree to sit down with someone like Aaron Monte. And so I, I feel like I keep being put in the position as someone who is way less knowledgeable on these issues of being the ones that were having conversations with the Matt Desses and stuff of the world because they won't sit down with the people who know more. And it, I feel like it's kind of a weird burden. I, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's right that I should be representing this view because I just am not as knowledgeable. But over time, being forced in this position over and over again, I think that this was a really good episode where, you know, I felt empowered enough to say all the things that I think that someone like Aaron would have said in that moment. Um, and it becomes really, really clear the extent to which I think they don't have the answers for some of the things that we've been asking them about what justifies our involvement in this crisis and what actually, what problem could you possibly have with this milk toast letter? And it got a little heated, but it was respectful and good. And I just, I appreciate him sitting down with me, but I really do also wish he would sit down with like some gray zone people. Cause I'm not saying the gray zone can be wrong about stuff, but how will we ever know if people aren't willing to actually have discourse Ask with questions. each other? Yeah. Talk. I think, I think, um, Dr. Greg Carr would be a good guest to have on too. I know I said that last yeah. time, but it was a while ago I was on, so I just tossed that name back out there. Yeah, you know he's been on. He's been. Oh wait, has he been on this podcast or he, maybe I just had him on the Bernie podcast? Yeah, I mean, but you said knowledgeable, and he has like thousands of books in his room, and he's just a real. I, he's he's pretty based, in my opinion. So I'll has he been talking about guy. Russia, Ukraine, or just other stuff? Yeah, well, he's on his podcast with uh, Karen Hunter every Saturday. Um, they talk about Oof. pretty much everything. I know. It's, I, she, I know she brings up like probably uh, <laughs> Vietnam flashbacks for you, but it's a pretty, <laughs> it's a surprisingly it's a surprisingly good podcast. And as a leftist, I feel like obviously he puts on a more Africana lens with this, so I think he's easier for someone like her to like tolerate. Mm-hmm. But he has a lot of good points. So it's, okay, I'll check it out. So you're saying that he has been talking about the Russia Ukraine conflict, though. Yeah, they talk about everything every week, you know, Kanye, Russia, Ukraine. Like, it's, it's a weekly thing, and they keep it up to date. So, Ooh, really... I want to talk to him about Kanye. Yeah. And Classic Car, more... that's the name of it. I have I have more Kanye thoughts. Yeah, he'd be good to talk about that. Well, let me DM him right now. Okay, thank you for calling in. So much, so many good ideas from the, from the thread, as always. Thank you, Brian. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. All right, Grace. How have you been, Grace?
Grace? I see you're unmuted, but I can't hear you. Grace? Going once, going twice. If this is a technical issue, then I'll pull you back from the back. You know how it is. I won't forget about you, Grace. I could never. Oh, can't I can't hear. Can anyone else hear? All right, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go on, Grace, but I will pull you up from the back next. I'm sorry, I'm sure it's just a technical glitch. Clifford, what's on your mind? Hey Brie, uh, can you hear me all right or is there too much ambient noise from the car? There's a little noise, but I think you can handle it. I can hear you. What's on your mind? Okay. Um, hey, so I saw your, the radar you mentioned. I could actually hear you at the beginning, so it wasn't all for naught. I'm sorry if it was only me who could hear you. That would suck. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but, uh, so I heard what you said, and your radar on Thursday, I think it was, is the reason that I. Ooh, Clifford, you said it's the reason that I, and then you cut out. I don't know if you're driving through a tunnel or just a dead zone or if the zombie apocalypse has happened and they got you, snatched you out of your car. Oh, you're back. Hey, you're glitchy, but you're back. Clifford? Clifford! Okay, you're very glitchy, Clifford. I'm gonna I'm gonna next you, but I'm gonna bring you back after Grace. This is this is the the universe writing itself saying no no no. Grace was supposed to be up next. <laughs> okay, Grace, can I hear you? Can you can can I hear you? How how would you be able to answer me? I answer that. Grace, I see that you're unmuted, and I still cannot hear you even a little bit. It's not like oh wait wait wait. Hello. Is Hello? it there? Yes. Yes. Oh. I don't know why Mercury isn't even in retrograde anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, first of all, happy pre-Halloween. Thank you. Uh, Do you have a costume? I have at least three. Um, One. (laughs) (laughs) When are you going to wear three costumes? Well, because it's Halloween. Tonight I'm going to see Big Boy. So. What's Big Boy? Hello. Are you there? Yeah, what's Big Boy? Like from Outcast? Oh, on... Big Boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't want to have to get into like call you out with the the baby and No, no. But no. anyway, we don't... <laughs> I'm old. My my baby is that I'm old. I know Big Boy, Big Boy was when I was a youth, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I have VIP ticks to go see Big Boy, so That's cool. I have like a skeleton like bodysuit for that and then Ooh. Um, And then I just read this cheesy book when women were dragons. So I'm going to repurpose this scaled bodysuit I have and make myself a dragon for Saturday. Ooh, Grace with the bodysuits. I see you, Grace. (laughs) And then on, on, then I'm going to be the Jersey Devil for my main costume. (laughs) Wait, what's the Jersey Devil? Like the hockey team? No. So there's like, it's like the folklore of New Jersey. I've been spending a bunch of time there recently. So I'm getting in touch with my Jersey roots. And there's like Mother Leeds, who was the, you know, she had like seven children. And then it's kind of like the Mothman of New Jersey, or he he lives out in the cranberry bogs and haunts people. I saw something. 
something about this on TikTok, but it was associated associated with Philly. They were talking about it being a Philadelphia thing, and I'm seeing on the internet now that it's both. Why do other states always try to take everything that's New Jersey and make well, it their own? Because South Jersey <laughs> and Philadelphia are like the same thing. I know, I know. They're very excited about the Phillies. I we were when I was there, some some man like a stranger went up to my husband and was like, Phillies four zero, like <laughs> just updating him on the score. We were like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I'm dating a Phillies a, a guy from Philadelphia, and ooh. it's been really intense. I gotta are, say, are you gonna go? Are you gonna go to Philly for the riots? That's. We <laughs> <laughs> so went up to Philly on Sunday for the game last Sunday. I guess when they they knocked whomever out of the series, and now they're going. I don't know. Don't ask. Now me they're going to the ship. Yeah, the ship. What does that mean? Oh, the, like champion. the championship. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't know sports words. I'm making up sports ball words with you right now. You were you were like you're you're on track to humiliate me somehow. If it's not a baby, it's gonna be me not knowing what a baseball is. (laughs) So he went and saw he went and like for the festivities because apparently there's like parades in the streets. I'm hearing and stuff. Yeah. Well, he came right back. You know, he had to work on Monday, but. He, it was raining and miserable, and the Phillies were down for most of the game. And he was like, I can't believe I came all the way here to watch them lose sitting in the rain. And then they came back from behind. He's been singing. You know how every time they win, they sing um, that Robin song, Dancing on My Own? Yeah. It's been nonstop Robin. <laughs> nonstop Robin. <laughs> and That's I amazing. Play on his piano, and he's like, it made him the happiest person in the world. And it's just jamming to Robin. It's 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 a weird it's a weird time, but I'm glad to be able to live through somebody else's excitement by caring. You can't you can't go wrong with a Philly guy too. So you know you get <laughs> well, to a, well maybe yeah. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> um, but yeah, I have I had no idea that this was happening. But multiple things. First of all, did you see the View protest? Because I know you love the View like me. Wait, someone, <laughs> they were protesting the View, or the View was protesting were, something else. No, there were protesters who interrupted the view. And I saw like Oh, the environmental sh- protesters. Yeah, while Ted Cruz was on. Yeah. And then they apologized to Ted Cruz about it. Yeah. Which made me so angry. And they're like, We're sorry this happened. We're sorry, Ted, that you had to endure this. Yes. So it came up on Rising and like they they made it a segment and the way that they had written it in the intro, like the intro for us to read was as though it was people protesting Ted Cruz. And it, they were trying to frame it as like, oh, these woke people can't handle Ted Cruz being platformed on The View. I was like, no, 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 no. This had nothing to do with Ted Cruz. <laughs> like, these were environmental protesters who were protesting because the environment matters. This is not about your weird Republican culture war shit. <laughs> like, I so know. Yeah, I do, yeah, go ahead. It was weird that it happened to be when Ted Cruz was there, yeah. you know, um, but somebody yelled something later that got bleeped that I you couldn't tell what it was, like, after they escorted the first round out. But I got to say, like, I really – maybe these soup people started a trend. And, like, interrupting live television is very smart as well. Yeah, for um, sure. And I said this in my Thursday radar, like, at the end of it, like, you can see – it feels like there's an escalation of protests between the painting people and these these um, these protests of the squad members over Ukraine, like 
even honestly, one six you can put in that trajectory. There's definitely an escalation that's happening. And it's not that I agree with obviously the politics behind every single thing that happens, but I think it it is really evocative of how unheard people are feeling right now and how desperate people are feeling right now. And it's I, I'm weirdly inspired by it, even if I mean obviously I'm not a fan of one six, but there's something that is like I don't know, there's something in the air, the truckers parts, all of this stuff feels like it's it's people's frustration over boiling in a way that could be productive, could be channeled in a productive way or not. But that possibility is there in a way that feels a little bit exciting. Down. Uh, we're watching them just like the libs just complete, like on NPR, they're really, you know, listen to the daily episode today and they're like, New York might go, you know, might go red, which is like a little dramatic. I feel like. Um, I guess they were talking about the governor race, uh-huh. but, um, I just love small, a small, but hilarious protest. Like I wish I'm not, I don't know. I'm not like a person who can come up with memes and stuff like that, but I want like to do funny things. Mm. Um, I almost bought a ginormous pair of scissors at the Halloween store because I was like, what could I, what could I do? Like a fake opening of, you know, some kind of nonsense, um, that's happening here locally because I kind of just want to clown, you know, I think clowning people is really great. Yeah. Um, but I, I really was interested in the city council story because that's kind of, if I deal in electoral politics at all, it's with my local city council. Um, mm-hmm. and like the theme, you know, gosh, I, well, who, there's no indication. I haven't seen that anywhere of like who actually recorded it. No, nobody knows because I think California is one of those states where it's illegal to do a one-way recording without the other person's knowledge. So it was posted anonymously to Reddit, I think, for that reason. And there was a lawsuit from, I'm not exactly sure who city, the city council or what agency actually, like organization actually tried this. But when the, when the LA Times, you know, did their big story, they were threatened with a cease and desist saying that you can't use this illegally recorded material. And of course, the Times is like, no, that's not how it works. Like, Journalists have a right to publish newsworthy information regardless of how it was procured. They're not responsible for the procurement, procurement, you know, and they're right. But, yeah, there was it's, – it's technically illegal to have gotten – whoever did record it could be subject to, to legal trouble. Oh, so that's why they're keeping it private. But, yeah. yeah, I mean, it just made me wonder, you know, obviously would I love to have, you know, ears behind the closed doors of my local city council – I think I've shared this before, but we're like an all it's it's a historic city council because it's all women um, Mm. and, you know, uh, and um, there are including three black women, which is like our, you know, would be disproportionate to the population of Asheville, like of Asheville where I live. Um, Mm. And but then we're seeing these things like. for example, they're saying there's like a day center for homeless people that has resources like um, for one of our local nonprofits runs. But then they're saying, well, the, the historically black church next door doesn't like like the people that are coming around. And so now like now, like I think they're making moves to like shut down this day center um, mm. and they're yeah. and they're saying like, oh, it's interfering with the black church or whenever things come up about policing, mm-hmm. um, they, they pivot and they say, well, black women are victims of domestic violence, which I mean, like, mm-hmm. obviously, as we know, like po- police do not help 
I mean, jeez. I, I mean, it's just like I used to work with victims of domestic violence and obviously police do not help with that situation. Right. Um, but like that whole the way I don't know, I think you can really see, you know, how it's playing out. I don't know. I just see it here. And I would love to hear yeah. like, what the behind closed doors conversations are um, as far as that goes. Although we don't have districts. All of our town just votes for the, you know. Um, I mean, of course, we're much smaller than L.A., um, but I think that um, and I think that the other piece of that story that didn't get talked about was like the idea that, um, you know, the white dude with the that had an adopted black child. I mean, obviously, there can be problems with that, especially like when he went into his like tearful you know, I don't know. <laughs> I yeah. think that there could have been more things that could be said about that aspect yeah. too. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, like almost like they, yeah. Cause I mean the part about using the kid as an accessory or something, then when you do, I, I mean, and it's hard to say, I mean, I don't know these people personally. You yeah, know I what don't I mean? know these people. It's always very difficult to talk about any given, you hear this a lot. And there's, when there's like interracial dating discourse, it's like, it's very difficult to get into because no one wants to impugn any particular relationship, any given couple who can love each other for the most sincere reasons in the world. And it's love is love and all of that. But when you look in the aggregate and you see the trends in dating or you see these trends in interracial adoption and trends here and there, it feels like you can't have a conversation about what's obviously true. Okay, if love is love is love, why is why is like the least common pairing like black women and Asian men and the most common pairing black men and white women? Like, why is it you're only seeing certain kinds of relationships manifesting and how can this be separate and apart from culture when there are these huge patterns that exist? And that's not about any two people, but it's about... It's obviously there's a there there, but it's so difficult to talk about because you don't want to, you don't want to say anything negative about, you know, someone who obviously loves their child and is taking care of their child or someone who loves their partner. And, and, and so, yeah, like, that's why, like, I haven't gotten into the weeds on how I really feel about some of this, the stuff that was said on these tapes. I think that's the kind of podcast that we could do with like tea and some people who are kind of willing to get into that sort of thing in an interesting way. I bet you Marcel, um, not Marcel. Uh, what's his name? Oh, uh, Irony Osei Frimpong would be happy to delve into those waters because he has no inhibitions about saying some kind of wild stuff about race. But I get what you're saying. I, I get what you're alluding to. Yeah, I mean, obviously the tape is gross, but then nothing, then nothing happens. Like ultimately, the whole pivot. I mean, yeah, it is. It is frustrating because you're like you know, obviously there are lots of people in the community who are pushing back and who have continued like a sustained presence, you know? Yeah. Um, and that there's no real recourse for them is definitely unfortunate, but I mean, that what a wild way. Yeah. I mean, it's just the, the, what is it? The, the book, the sum, uh, was it the sum of us? The sum uh, of us. Which one? The, the you interviewed the I read the book because yeah I the zero to it. sum game it was it called the sum of us it was something about a zero sum game by Heather McGee um, yeah the book is called oh you're right the sum of us you're right mm-hmm. and I really you know I really appreciated that but that's unfortunate to think that that's like the way the direction that we're delving but I think a lot of it is also going to have to do with like what the GOP strategy is, especially mm-hmm. in targeting Latinx communities. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, def- I mean, all the more reason to, 
to do working class, you know, working class politics here. Um, but obviously the Dems are moving the other direction. I also loved your radar. I don't usually, honestly, like Robbie and it's kind of, I'm not, I listen to your podcast. I don't don't watch all that that much. Um, my dad already does like a conservative YouTube channel that I don't watch that I don't watch. Oh, really? (laughs) That I avoid. Yeah. Um, that's his job. So, I mean, So I think it just hits too close to home for me. Mm. Although Robbie is wildly more wonderful than the dude that my dad does his his show Mm. with. Um, But but I really, really liked it. Um, And yeah, thank you for that. Thank you. Um, And it caused a good stir. Yeah, I was pleased by it. Because, you know, we've been like, we've been algorithmically in the in the in the toilet over at rising and it, i was very glad to see like it, you you try so hard i mean obviously you're trying to say things that are real and true and good but you're also trying to figure out like this is what i was saying to jonathan earlier like as real and good and true as what you're saying is it doesn't matter if nobody sees it so like trying to strike that balance and i thought that the wednesday writer might do numbers you know I said, let's title it. Will Republicans save us? The answer is no, but you have to click on it to find out. <laughs> and that didn't work. And I was very pleased to see that, like, this is something that resonated with people. And I don't know what to do next, to be honest, because it is just truly a bleak situation. And I just want midterms to be over with, to be honest. But it might be a good it's a good time for it to come out because I think it draws, you know, while while the Dems are in this panic, you know, or. I, I kind of wonder, is it even really a panic or is this just another angle to try to convince people to want to vote? Yeah. Um, I think it might not be that bad. Did you see that? There was a hot mic of uh, Chuck Schumer yesterday. He was talking to Biden on the tarmac and he was saying like, uh, I don't think, I don't think the Fetterman debate hurt us that much. I think we're good. Oh, geez. No, I didn't so, hear I don't that. Know. It could be just a cynical ploy to get people to vote by making it seem like we're going to lose. I don't know. We, yeah. the Democrats, are going to lose. <laughs> yeah. won't happen very hard. <laughs> but maybe it'll be the motivation for, for something different. How fascist do we have to, well, you, I know you don't like the word, but how far does it have to go before? <laughs> before... No, I don't, mind the, I don't mind the word. I just want to apply it to Joe right. Biden and Donald Trump and DeSantis and all of them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But how, you know, before we start getting some of the, some of the, liberals to start to switch you know i don't know maybe we'll see but anyway i appreciate you hopefully you have a good halloween are you dressing up are you gonna dress up for halloween so like four years ago ish my friends like before we all had kids we came to chicago for what we called jocktober it was a (laughs) kind of athletic themed halloween party so ostensibly we're recreating Jocktober, but there's only three of us now instead of like the 10 of us who were here, who came last time. And one of us is like seven months pregnant. And I don't exactly think it's going to be a wild, wild time, but I <laughs> bought my costume that I wore four years ago, which was um, Richard Simmons. You know, oh, yeah. Oh, I know him. Yeah. So I have some like striped red plaid <laughs> shorts and, you know, Converse high tops. And I last time I just wore my Afro you know, because he has one. But I, I this time I have an Afro wig that I bought for a uh, costume a couple years ago that I didn't wear that was supposed to be like a blonde Beyonce uh, from from Austin Powers Afro wig. So I'm gonna I'm gonna see how unhinged that looks if I can if I add it to the costume. So that's, that's my low effort Halloween this year. 
wigs are always it's always a toss-up with the halloween wig because halfway through that night you're going to be like it's itching me i don't know what to do do i maintain the costume (laughs) yeah although it is nice especially if it's inclement weather not to have to worry about like am i gonna get is my is my actual hair gonna mess up because i gotta tell you my hair does not like humidity it is not sustainable in moist environments <laughs> when you're like out in the streets, like going from like bar to bar on like a party night, like Halloween, it is nice to not have to worry about like dipping in and out of drizzle because you've got a fake hair on your head. So, yeah, it's like, a, it's like a built in umbrella. Uh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, well, have fun. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Grace. Keep the face. Bye bye. All right. Cousin Eric, long time no chat. How have you been doing? Hey. Hey. What's on your mind this evening? Afternoon. <laughs> well, I have to remind myself that I live in the most comically hilarious state in the Union. Oh, how's um, it going in Florida? Let's see. Where do I start? Whether it's um, teaching math under the best standards in Florida, mm-hmm. that's miserable. Um. Especially when you're teaching a math class you haven't taught before. Mm-hmm. And you have a veteran teacher who's taught the class, but yet the book is new to her, too. So, so yeah, that's fun. Um, and finding out from your principal, you're, you're far behind. And mm. my, my response to her is, I got to make sure these kids have Algebra 1 master before I do Algebra 2. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That's that's stupidity, and then that was due large part because Ron DeSantis kind of fucked us, you know, with the whole uh, we're gonna ban fifty four books because he just have uh, CRT in them. I'm like, okay, what CRTs in math? If what what you saw a problem that says if little Timmy called Tyrone the N word, how fast will Timmy catch a fade from Tyrone? Like what? Like you saw a problem like that? <laughs> no, CRT is the problem is written. You know, Miguel sold Tyrone five oranges. <laughs> if if if, if Tyrone sells four of those oranges to Trisha, how many oranges does he have left? Like just using Jeez. culturally appropriate names is probably CRT. My God. <laughs> yeah. And we I'm like losing fifty four books over that shit. And on top of the fact that I'm having to re-review basic algebra skills and and my principal being like, well, pacing is your only problem. You're good everywhere else. I'm like, okay. Hmm. I just need you to be patient with me because you know what's going on. So, you Are know. you experiencing, I, I was talking to a teacher friend recently and he was saying that, you know, these high school, he teaches uh, high school and he was saying that the, the reading levels here are just, crazy because of COVID and that his 10th graders are like 8th graders and that this is making everything doubly hard. Yeah. It's even worse than math. Yeah. It's even worse. Because especially with Florida because here's the thing again you know you remember we had to do the model of okay hey you had some of your students in class and some of your students on Zoom. Now, thankfully, I was at my previous school where there wasn't that much of a student body there anyway. It was an alternative center. So we didn't deal with it as bad. Mm-hmm. But 
still the fact that like, okay, um, I got to rely on this student to show up to class and um, if they don't show up, uh, and if I noticed they were late, I would, some of the parents I knew like that. So I'm like, okay, cool. I'll just text your mama or whatever. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you'll get your ass to class then. So, so yeah, there's that. And people just lost too much. I mean, we have been able to do like a lot of the repetition stuff and I have to get used to being able to actually give homework this time because my previous two places I was at couldn't give homework. Mm-hmm. So that sucked. And, and yeah, it's just dealing. It, we're, we're heading to a point where we got to rethink how, how this education shit works. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah. nobody wants to say the rest of it out loud. It's like, we're already here. Just yeah. We fix this. That's so, that's so insightful, Eric. I, I was on, I think it was Thursday on the Hill. We had a guest, maybe it was the day before, but we had a guest. The segment was about, you know, learning loss because of COVID. And I know there's a lot of controversy around this. I'm not trying to get into it right now. But the point I was just making was, you know, he and Robbie went on for about six minutes about how horrible it was that, you know, kids were behind and they shouldn't have closed the schools or they shouldn't have kept them closed as long as they were. And and that's completely fine. And there's legitimacy to a certain aspects of that argument. But after six minutes of that, I asked him, I was like, just all due respect, is there anybody talking about a policy plan for what to do about the fact that we're here? How do you get the kids back on track? What are you going to do about this? There are already these deficiencies in our education system, et cetera. And there's like, I mean, the guy was nice about it. He, after it was like, that's a great question. He, he wasn't defensive about it in the least, but it is frustrating that that's not at all a part of the dialogue. It's all about the blame game for who's responsible for the kids being at this point. And there was absolutely no political appetite for what to do next. Yeah. It's just like everybody pins all the responsibility on teachers. And, and I, I, I don't know how you deal with Robbie because that would have irritated the shit out of me. You guys, uh, you guys are so hard on my man, Robbie. No, no, because here's, here's the thing. His, his ignorance is just disgusting on these things. Like, I'm like, brother, get your ass in this class and teach this fucking math, that bitch. Like, I'm like, I'm like, get your ass in this class and do this shit. Because, brother, it's already bad enough. I, I come in having to review Algebra 1 skills again. Hmm. It's like, bro, they're in Algebra 2. They're way past Algebra 1 now. But I got to review what I got to review. And, and like I said, like, I know I brought up, uh, I know I brought up what Professor Wolf said in his uh, Sickness is the System book about how we should have, like, just reduced class sizes completely. I'm like, you got to rethink this entire fucking thing. Wait, I'm smaller class sizes generally speaking what did he say about it yeah so let me give you the cliff notes version so basically basically it's like well what you should have done was done social distancing and, and reduce class sizes to at least a handful and and have everybody socially distance in the class with uh-huh. the mask on with whatever you know uh-huh. that would have helped it's just we have our idiot society that can't solve its own bullshit. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, I, my my big thing has been ventilators. Um, like 
I, and also I gotta be honest, like I know that some people don't like the masks because in an educational context, they say it's harder for people to communicate. And I'm not gonna say that's like a complete non-issue, but it seems obvious to me that we wasted so much time and energy talking and fighting about vaccines and mandates and we should have been helping people understand how effective masks were and how effective ventilators were. And I like I I I would much rather have a world where all that energy and money was spent making sure that there were like, you know, small classrooms with like a ventilator in every corner and like masks at least in a pile at the door for people to use if they wanted to, even if it's not mandated or anything, just if they wanted to, just to have them available and free high quality masks. And we're just so late on the game. We're about to go into another winter where people are going to be forced indoors and can't open their windows. And people like there's just no opportunity. Like it's going to be a shit show for these kids again. Yeah, and it's just it's um, and not was just that. It's just like I got classes of of damn near thirty people. I'm like, you expect me to keep up with a hundred and eighty kids? Well, high schoolers, but yeah, they haven't they haven't fully grown yet. But like a hundred and eighty of y'all, and I would rather like. We need to have just reduced class size to, to at most 10. Because mm-hmm. this is nuts. I can't. I want to give more one-on-one attention, but I can't. Yeah. Because I'm only one guy. Yeah. And I got complimented on, oh, you got a good rapport with students? I'm like, yeah. Because I'm all over the place like a fucking jackrabbit having mm-hmm. to fix basic algebra skills. Mm-hmm. So, of course, of course, they got to trust me. I mean, I can't mm-hmm. just be some weirdo stranger in the front of the room just bloviating yeah. shit. Then I'm just some weirdo stranger bloviating shit. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know. It's just, it, it's it's beyond annoying because I jumped, I originally jumped into teaching. I, I wasn't originally an education major anyway. I was a pure math major. Mm-hmm. So I, ju- I jumped in and I'm like, all right, fuck it. Let me jump in and try to help as much as I can. Mm-hmm. But damn, you like even even people like me, you will come close to pushing away. Cause what, like what, what the fuck? Yeah. And and on on the state of Florida, still this optimism after Hurricane Ian that's annoying me. Cause my okay. area, my area got hit directly, mm-hmm. and it's this weird like optimism without realism. It's this, like, yeah, two, three, nine strong, yeah, Let's, we're, we're coming back. I'm like, you don't learn from this shit, you will get wiped out completely the next time. Because I'm like, you know the, these damn near, these hurricane seasons are going to end up being perennial again. So, so what's the, what, people are optimistic, why? What's giving them cause for optimism? I mean, the, the trying to read, like, the optimism in trying to rebuild and get back to normal I and all see. this. And I, I'm just saying, like, did you not learn from what the fuck just happened? Yeah. We have people that just lost a bunch of shit. Mm-hmm. Um, the storm surge was nuts. And I'm kind of going, uh, yo, between this, between the heat, the heat bullshit, the blizzard in Texas, if anybody remembers that shit. Yeah. Um, between uh, Sy- like Siberia getting warmer when they're normally cold. I'm like, uh, y'all, we we fucked this planet up. Um, what's it? According to IPCC, we got ten years to act. I think it's less than that now, my friend. Yeah, I feel like, like they've been saying twelve years for like twenty years. Yeah, <laughs> but it's like 
you got to, because these scientists, you know, they're getting nervous because, like, we, you're almost to the point of hitting feedback loops. Like, like, bro, whoa, like, (sighs) so. The the class size thing is really interesting to me, though, um, Eric, because I'm curious. I I think that there are obviously, there's there's pedagogical reasons why class sizes should be smaller, obviously. But I wonder about with COVID spread, because the kids are kids are in the classes and then they're not in their classes. They're in the hallway. They're in the lunchroom. And if you don't also make it so that they're not congregating in school outside of class, is it is that really going to do as much to stop the spread as we would hope? No, because nobody gives a fuck down here. And that's just me putting it bluntly. Nobody gives a fuck down here. Um, if you want to see hyper-individualism on crack, come to Florida. Because this, this shit and this what this clown shit between Ron DeSantis and Charlie Crist, that clown ass debates, and honestly, I think DeSantis yeah, nobody was talking. This is what was irritating to me a little bit about the rising scheduling, and I should say this too: there were a lot of debates that happened that week where the Democrats came off better. And I'm not caping for Democrats, so like this isn't my instinct to want to do this. But in retrospect, I was like, this kind of feels kind of messed up that we spend so much time talking about how Fetterman did a bad job, which is true, and we should talk about it. But we didn't talk about, I mean, I have no appetite for talking about Val Demings because I don't like her. But she did have some good moments in her debate. Charlie Chris had some good moments in his debate. I also don't care about that Republican guy. But like, it, it feels weird. It was, it was, I felt like some of the debate coverage that we did last week was very one-sided. You didn't. You didn't miss nothing with that. With that Chris DeSantis, that Chris DeSantis debate, you didn't miss shit. <laughs> okay. uh, you, no, because basically you're picking between Republican and Republican like. You like. Yeah, I mean he was bro, literally a Republican. Yeah, I'm like yeah. So it's like, and apparently he has popularity with some black folks down here. I'm like, and I'm still going. Uh, uh, to other black folks, this man was, this man's been flip flopping more than. Ugh. It's just pay attention, shit. Yeah, but but damn. Um, honestly, DeSantis might win the re-election again. You can't. You, what? You can't get an eco-socialist to run against him because that's to me the only way you beat him. Um, and and apparently, Florida well, Greens and general just aren't that strong in general. But mm. damn. I mean, sometimes I think, and I know that this is accelerationist, and it makes me a very evil person for thinking this way, and I'm sorry in advance. But sometimes no, I look really. around and I think maybe it takes Republicans sweeping the country like Reagan did and winning all of the states but one. Like maybe it takes, or like FDR did, obviously, but like maybe it takes actually getting back into a world where there's such an overwhelming defeat that it really forces Democrats, not that they, I think, will do this, but it would force either Democrats to reevaluate and bend the knee more to the left, or it would create an ep- an opening for a left party who could credibly say, I can do at least as well as the Democrats, given how terribly the Democrats did in the ele- last election, give me a shot. Maybe I can beat back the Republican wave. Because honestly, like, it, it, I, I, I know, like, intellectually, I know how much there is to lose. I think it would be horrible if they had a federal ban on abortion. Like, I, I understand. But I also have, like, I, I have such a hard time emotionally investing in the outcome of this. And, and it's a weird dissonance because I'm not stupid. I know that people are going to suffer and be hurt from having these Republicans in office across the country. Like, that is 100% true. And there are democracy implications. Like, one of the, the, one of the other episodes I've recorded that I guess you guys will hear next Thursday 
is with this young woman who broke this story about um, Stacey Abrams's campaigns, uh, uh, basically get paying nine point four million dollars for these lawsuits to for these lawsuits to her friend um, who has a law firm. And experts say that that is like way more than these things should cost. And there's this implication that it's kind of a kickback scheme. And it's like, you look at that, you, you look at where the Democrats are, you look at all of their broken promises, and you look at how much money people could raise. Like Stacey Abrams raised a lot of money. Black Lives Matter raised a lot of money. And it's like, we could just be funneling that so many other places. It's overwhelming, you know? Yeah, it's, it, people just, we we have a dangerously miseducated country. Um, fuck. Well, you're I get. And I and I appreciate you down there. And I, I'm really sorry. It's such a, a slog for you. Yeah, I'm. I'm trying. It's just well, I can only speak for me, but it's just the patience is getting thin at at some point. It's just fuck. And I and been down here all my life, so you'd think I'd be able to deal with this, but like, after a while, you know, what the hell? You can only take so much. And then, you know your students aren't learning everything they should anyway from their other classes, and so you're sitting in this point of not only am I trying to make sure they know my stuff but deep down i know they aren't learning everything everywhere else either yeah so that's yeah. a frustrating place to be all right um i'll shut up now and get off this thing well thank you for calling in, eric and thank you for being our, our our local florida on the ground correspondent we really appreciate you all right all right keep the faith my friends yep all right bye-bye andrew what's on your mind this afternoon can we call it afternoon yet yeah it's afternoon it's quite literally afternoon english makes sense sometimes <laughs> andrew can you unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind it's the little corn cob on the bottom left it says mute under it and you should press it and then it will unmute you or not. Can you hear me? Whatever you feel like. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, it didn't it didn't show up first. I, no like, worries. I, I saw that I heard everything, but I didn't see myself become the caller. No worries at all. What is on your mind this evening, afternoon? Uh well I have good luck today because I had like really bad in and out service until pretty much ten seconds before you uh, moved on from Eric, so that's good. Oh, God is um, good. God is good. <laughs> yeah, our our telecom is. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I I, um, I have thoughts about the city council. Uh, yeah. Debacle. I also have a lot of thoughts about the midterms. So I didn't really hear what other people talked about. So you can take your poison. Depending Whatever. On what is. Okay. Well. Whatever you really prefer. Quickly. Yeah. Um, I think with the city council nonsense in LA like it 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 I think I definitely take the point of Pascal and, and a little bit also of your um, talk that like it's not necessarily uh, surprising mm-hmm. and it's also it's also not necessarily you know causing someone to step down over this 
is not necessarily going to send a message to politicians that they need to do that they need to deliver on anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I will say like Latin America are very, uh, very white supremacist cultures as well. It's just like the U.S. is even more so that when anybody from Latin America shows up, whether or not that, you know, regardless of how they identify before or where they would fit into those cultures south of the U.S. border, um, they're they're all just kind of lumped together. It's like, oh, they're all Latinos. But it's clear there's a huge difference between the majority of the, like, migrant agricultural workers or people coming to work in construction, you know, like, class-wise, socioeconomically, and politically, versus the sort of Cuban exiles or the Venezuelan exiles who are like, yes, please invade our home countries and put us back in power. So I, I think like it's it's really not uncommon to hear um, something like what that what that woman was saying or what the other guy was saying. And the other thing about the the kidneys meeting, like uh, man, corporal punishment never ever went out of uh, style here. Just for just for the record, like I Where's will here, say, Andrew? Uh, Mexico. Okay. I yeah, I've been living here a little under a year now. Um, but yeah, it's not like that's you know, it's still everyone would still think it's bad if if some parent like beat the shit out of their kid that like slaps their Yeah. Um, just, I, like, I was say I was saying this to Dom before we started recording. It's like so delicate, like but I was like some some people were framing it like, Oh my god, she thinks that you know, black kids have to be beaten into submission. I was like, mm, well, I just think that she thinks that all kids should be beaten into submission. Because, <laughs> like, culturally, like, there's still a lot higher tolerance for corporal punishment outside of, like, wasps. <laughs> outside of rich white people, everybody else is still kind of beating their kids. Um, so, yeah. I mean, not my parents. You know, like, not everyone, obviously. Like, my parents don't believe in it. Like, a lot of people don't. But it's much more correlated along, like, some race, but also a lot of class lines. And everyone pretending like he just wants to beat the kid because it's black. I thought was a little dishonest. Yeah, even though it was still I think gross. We can, yeah, I th- I agree. It's still a gross, you know, not funny joke. But uh, right. I think we can, I think we can easily disaggregate that from the other things that she said. Yeah, and just like, you know, there's there's very much the dynamic of like Spaniards keeping themselves cloistered and pure in all of Latin America. I mean, if you if you look at commercials entertainment of any kind billboards or whatever it's all it's as white as can possibly be uh, uh-huh. and uh, and that's on purpose like there's a airline in mexico uh, volaris and they kind of got in a little bit of trouble for having a whites only advertisement you know like a call for actors for commercials at one oh. point but it's uh-huh. like i don't know why people were you know, it should have been a broader thing. It's like that's every bit of the media in Latin America. And then, you know, you go to a certain part of town or like one city over and it's like, oh, this just looks like any mall in California. And it's like, you know, Mercedes and everything. You go, yeah, you go I was, 20 minutes the I, other way and it's like all brown. and Yeah, yeah. I went to um, one of my friends had a bachelorette party in Mexico City a few years ago. Uh, I guess more than a few years ago now because I'm old and no one's getting married anymore. And um, what was so interesting, like, we were all, we were mostly black. Um, I think it was, she's Ethiopian and her cousins were there. So it was, like, half Ethiopian, then me, and then, like, an Indian girl and, like, a white girl and, like, a 
Egyptian girl. So it was a mostly black group, but like diverse, but not white. The, the, the diversity was not mostly white diversity. Anyway, so we were all in Mexico City and we had been trying and struggling to find like nightlife. Like we had a, had a bummer night where we just couldn't find the clubs. And then one night someone was like, no, you're going the wrong place. Go here. And we went to this place and it was delightful. It was ritzy and beautiful and the music was good and everyone was so friendly and we got ushered to the front of the line and we went in and we had this night but afterward we were all like that was the whitest place that we've been in the whole next it was the nicest and whitest place that we've been and it was weird because it felt like our status as visibly we got, we felt like we got really good treatment actually because we were so obviously foreign and, and like loud and american in our way of being and it was a really uncomfortable position for us to be in feeling like we're escaping the bias of kind of a certain kind of anti-blackness that we have in the United States, but at the expense of a local population and just basically benefiting from our privileges, um, expats. It was a weird, it was a weird dynamic and one that I did not, I did not fully expect. Did I lose you, Andrew? Oh no, you just muted yourself. Hey, yeah, sorry. No, that's, that's definitely the, the exact dynamic uh, and yeah even within within advertising it's funny like it's not super pronounced but you'll see like you know zero indigenous mexican people like for the most part like one out of 15 maybe in a ad where they have to have a lot of people mm-hmm. uh, but they will occasionally have like one afro person mm-hmm. one black person in the ad and it's like i don't i don't know i don't know how to exactly break that down but I, I think that 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 should be a lens in like when you're looking at Latinos in the U.S. as well I think that the the lens of there's there's the the slightly different flavor but very prominent white supremacy in all of Latin America that doesn't go away just because you know like within the community mm-hmm. or communities just because they've arrived in the U.S. and now everyone in the U.S. just kind of will lump them into the one group of yes you are you're latino well you heard Um, her talking about the oaxacans was it oaxacans i don't even know she's teaching me about different kinds of racism right now she was like all of the the short tan dark-haired people in chinatown or whatever exactly and that that to me speaks to you know where she views herself in the the class and race landscape she views herself as like a spaniard Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's, that's most of what I had to share about that. I, I think like with regards to, you know, forcing politicians to step down, I think in the, in the context of California, it might be more interesting to talk about like, you know, that Gavin Newsom sack of human garbage that he is <laughs> almost lost a recall with like, what did it, it only needed to have what, like 10 or 15% of the amount of votes that the original election had. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a similar dynamic. Shama Sawant just kind of overcame with a recall. It's like, it's a pretty close margin that can put him in the off season. But I think that there should be room for a recall. I think that people should, I don't, I don't know how to like uh, precipitate a cultural shift where people take that as like a normal part of democracy. But yeah, I mean, like for instance, the the squad rhetoric all the time like i feel like there should be a campaign within the people who push their campaigns to have a recall uh, mm. and or and say basically 
do you know force the vote on anything because you mm-hmm. said you were going to do that you you came in with all the good talk talking about how better to have uh you know one term congress person who really does something than mm-hmm. you know people who are in there for decades you can do decades of work in one term was that really now when i watch it again that ad is so corny from mm-hmm. AOC. but at the time i was like oh cool yeah do that mm-hmm. um but yeah i think like i I, th- I do kind of feel like what these council people said are are enough for people to be pissed and be like maybe you shouldn't be a council person if you're if you're just talking shit about uh you know people who are your constituents uh-huh. um because that that clearly denotes uh a you know apathy towards the people you're supposed to be working for um but i do wish it would be more like well hey you said you were gonna do this or you know like Mm-hmm. Gavin Newsom said, you know, feigned favor for single payer, but has kept it off of, you know, as far mm-hmm. from the, 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 you know, legal standard as possible. Um, but yeah, then I, that's about all I had to say. And then I have more on midterms if you want to give me another minute. Yeah, hit me with the midterm stuff. I think we should be using the midterms and also the next presidential election and the next midterms. And as long as it takes really as uh like a platform for propaganda for new parties and for non-electoral political movements um katie is a busy person but she has told me a couple times that she'd be down to interview someone from morena and i think that like mexico mexico has a better constitution um than the united states in some in some regards for sure Mm. But they also have a more similar, uh, you know, like the bicameral house, it's not a parliament, uh, extremely similar, like, gears of government to the United mm-hmm. States versus France or other other countries that may have had a recent, like, positive shift in politics. And I think the, the strategy that Morena employed, well, many strategies to go from having, you know, being not being a political party in 2012 to winning a majority of the Congress in both houses and the presidency in 2018 is something that we should just be blasting from the rooftops. And also like the alliances that they made between different existing social organizations, um, same deal with Mas in Bolivia. Uh Like, I think that we should be, we should be putting up people from uh, third parties that have really wield taken power and wielded it uh whether they're you know like kind of the in, in the parliamentary context where we're like where richard wolf will say like oh yeah there's these other smaller parties that pull the center to the left whether it's that level of success or whether it's actually like of the multiple states in latin america who have who have had like a, a full takeover of of some form of people's movement in the government um and yeah i just i i think like getting out of the mindset of do we need to respond to this election like we're we're still putting ourselves in this cycle that is that is too short-sighted to to really take on the project of building a new party that is formidable i think it'll take at least probably eight to ten years in the united states to do it but i think if we just threw all of the interim elections to the winds and like you were saying said you know fuck it like the democrats aren't going to do anything 
um, if if it has to go like a Reagan sweep for a lot of Democratic voters to kind of snap out of it and be like, wow, we maybe should do something else. And at, at that time, we're like, hey, well, we built this cool new party. Uh, you know, if there's something for people to plug into and like I think you've said before, like a landing pad for people, it's mm-hmm. going to take a while to build that. But I think that we we can we can use the electoral cycle as far as long as we're putting our brains like temporally outside of it mm-hmm. and just being like, look, we're, we have a project to work on. The election cycle is a great opportunity for like uh, publicity, media, propaganda, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and and if there if there are local centers like say there's a you know a people's movement that's ready to rock in like one or two states uh push push for that as long as it's i, I think as long as it's outside of the two parties and uh it's it's not like obviously a scam um i don't think there's any reason to say categorically we won't participate in elections until we're all ready to go and just win everything i think we can kind of do both, but I think ultimately we need to not be preoccupied with like, do we have a response to this election? Who's the candidates? If we're if we're still kind of picking amongst the trash heap. Yeah, I, I think I agree. It's 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 felt you know me. I, I I have felt like I had to work to to get to this place. Like I have had these feelings for a long time. Obviously, I haven't voted for a Democrat for a long time, but I it took I think the last two years of us really getting proof that the current strategy has no chance of working before I felt as comfortable saying we have to abandon ship. And I don't think it's like, you know, it's not that I, it's not that I needed to be brought along. I think that it's responsible, like in order to have credibility in saying now it doesn't work, we needed to be able to prove it to those who didn't have that instinct in the first instance. And so I know these last couple of years have been difficult, but I think in in some ways it was a blessing that we had the narrow margins in the house. We had these forced vote opportunities. We have proof that the squatters won't do anything. We've had, we have moments like this business with a Ukraine letter. We ha- we've had all these moments where AOC has contradicted herself online, um, you know, basically using the entire rationale for why she wanted to force a vote on impeachment. That was the rationale that we said was the reason she should force a vote on Medicare for all. Like we have all of this evidence now, and I feel a lot more comfortable engaging in accelerationist arguments than I did before. And I think it's because we can substantiate why we feel this way. And I completely agree that like these election cycles are opportunities for us to like make our case and capitalize. It's not entirely clear to me what that's always going to look like. Like I was thinking about Matthew Ho recently and what a great candidate he is and how there's like no national awareness of who he is. And I was thinking, well, the race is very close and looking not good for the Democrat in um, North Carolina. I I almost wish there were a media cycle about how Matthew Ho caused the Dems to lose the Senate seat in, in South Carolina, because at least then he would get some name recognition on a national basis. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And I don't know that that's right. I don't know that strategically that's right, but that's kind of where my mind has been. You know, how 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 can we better serve left candidates, Green Party candidates, that do exist that are so credible and I think would be so appealing if they had an, a, a bigger platform, you know, what could we have done differently to make the most of an election season like this? Yeah, I would just say, um, I, I actually super appreciate your methodology with, um, 
how you present arguments and continually revisit them. And it's like, I, I have no uh, real concept of what it's like being a, a lawyer or, or being, you know, more prominent in campaign or media, but I feel like um, I appreciate that you're exploring all of the other angles. And so it's much harder for people to credibly say that, oh, you're just uh, apathetic or impatient or spoiled or whatever other nonsense people say yeah. about people who make an accelerationist argument after having done years of thought and work on that subject. Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate I'm. I'm glad that it seems to make sense to you. It doesn't make sense to everybody. And of course, I can't say for sure that I'm right about any of this, but I'm trying to at least be transparent about how I'm thinking about it all. Yeah. Hey, can I um, really quick? Um, I just saw there was kind of a development in Mumia Abdul-Jamal's legal process. And um, I, I actually, I know a different person, but I have people who are friends of mine that work on the the international... Leonard Peltier Defense Committee. Uh-huh. And I wonder if you'd be willing to do an episode perhaps with people from both of those uh, legal legal struggles and maybe talk political prisoners, legal system stuff. Yeah, that would be fascinating. I think that's a great. Uh, where should I email stuff? I, I Don't you have an info email for the podcast? I just can't remember. Yeah, I do. I'm sometimes not good at checking it. Um, I want this to be Okay, got, I, I will follow up. You email it to the bad faith, you know, the bad faith email. Okay. Yeah, email it to the bad faith email. That's better than DMing me on Patreon. Because sometimes the DMs are such a mis- mixed bag that if I'm feeling that all emotionally vulnerable, I can check it. <laughs> that is totally fair. I, I understand. But yeah, I'll shoot an email to the bad faith email and I'll make the, um, you know, the subject line super identifiable and short. Okay, perfect. So. Thank you. Free movie. Yeah. Later. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. And, and shout yeah. out to your chickens. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of roosters and chickens and turkeys around. <laughs> it's making you very popular in the chat. <laughs> oh, right, All right on. I'll check later. See you. <laughs> See you. Hey, Jonathan. How you doing, my friend? Hey, uh, I'm at work. Uh, so, like, I, I apologize for any engine noise in the background, but. Uh, we take it all. Yeah, we take I. Roosters, I ex- we take. Sirens. <laughs> <laughs> well, I uh, I certainly uh, appreciate everything you uh, were just saying about your whole process of, of getting to that radar. And it's kind of funny we had uh, on our little call and we were even dropping reference to uh, your old article in Current Affairs in defense of litmus tests. Hmm. And the importance of basically forcing a lot of these people to put up or shut up to put yeah. them in situations where they're it's it's either shit or get off the pot. And, you know, if you don't actually do what you say you're going to do, then you're not serious. And I mean, seriously, that radar, like it, it really just hit all the right notes at the right times. And the, like the response was just overwhelmingly positive. I mean, look at the comments on that thing. Yeah. It's, I was pleasantly surprised that, look, what's funny is that Wednesday's radar about the Republicans trying to um, raise Social Security, Medicare age, also had uniformly, like, like, I shouldn't say uniformly, but very positive comments from, like, a, a substantive level, but didn't get a lot of traction. And that is sometimes the worst because it's like, ugh, like, it's nice to finally get some, some good feedback from the rising audience, 
But, like, it's like, why didn't you like it enough to just share it? Because <laughs> this is actually, like, very important for people to know. So it's, it feels really good to hit that 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 balance on the Thursday, on the Thursday one. Yeah, I mean, still, like, obviously, if there was any justice in the world, all, like, these would have gotten, like, much more than they got. But still, like, it, this is doing, like, re- very respectable numbers, certainly better yeah. than most of TYT's content. Wow. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, like, you know, people are seeing it, people are vibing with it. It resonates for anybody who sees it. And it's certainly a lot more people than I can reach with my 670 followers on Twitter. And it's, That's like, I, bad, like it was just... <laughs> it's also, it's in so like many, like the 189 people in here should go follow, follow Jonathan on Twitter right now. What's your handle, Jonathan? That's my name, Jonathan Cadman. Okay, because he's excellent. So follow jo- Jonathan Cadman on Twitter. I do. You should too. <laughs> but, okay, go ahead. But yeah, that you know that like you like you've really just been killing it with these radars lately. And like if you leave the hill, now you're married to it. You're gonna have to incorporate a topical <laughs> monologue. Uh, into bad faith if you ever leave the hill because uh, I don't know if we can go without these anymore. I and... I thought about it. I wanted to actually do that for a long time. My the thing that's holding me back, besides how um, time consuming it is to write them, is that uh, I can't figure out how to get my teleprompter to work at home. <laughs> I have two teleprompters. One of them was given to me as I left the Bernie campaign by a friend in the audiovisual department. And one of them I bought because I couldn't figure out how to get that one to work. And I can't get the remote control on my little one to work. So as soon as I figure out how to do a teleprompter, I think I definitely, I want to explore not just monologues, but like video essays. Um, you know how yes. there are all these YouTube creators, they do these like hour long where they talk to a camera and there's editing and there's comedy and there's, you know, c- cut, they cut between the, te- you know, they make it like th- through the editing process and the cuts, there can be a lot of like humor and storytelling and I, I love that format and I actually love doing my own video editing I did it you know a good amount back in the day and I just haven't had the bandwidth for it so yeah well and you, you got your 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 old buddy shoe on head can help you <laughs> I've, I've been wanting I, remember that. Her. I, I really want to talk to her she was in DC like a month ago and I tried it was we were trying to meet up but we weren't able to but I'd love not just to have her on but to be able to talk in in person yeah, and I, like I also thought, you know, I like, I don't want to keep you too long because you know you, I know you're in Chicago with your friends, but uh, you know I uh, I thought I could drop a little easy to use uh, hint for for pushback that uh, you know since the other Jonathan brought up MMT, um, you know the uh, those fifteen hundred dollar checks they had absolutely zero connection to inflation, and basically the next time like Robbie tries to drop that. Just ask him how. Even an economist, like they can't explain it. You've got neoliberal economists that work for the Democrats and neoliberal economists that work for the Republicans saying that stuff, and none of them can answer that question either. Like the only difference is the ones that work for the Democrats are sorry about what they're advocating. Well, but aren't they it's, just gonna uh, say it's it's spending and that it exacerbates, you know, demand when people have more money in their pockets and can go and spend money. Yeah. It doesn't like that, and that's the problem with that because that fifteen hundred dollar check it all went to people with negative net wealth, okay? And there were all these surveys of how these people spent that money. 
As soon as it hit their bank account, basically, it got spent on bills, on rent, and on debt service. All of it. It was gone almost instantly. Okay, so if it was going to cause any inflation, it would have had been that initial spike, like right around the Christmas shopping season, and then it goes away. Because that money doesn't stay in the in the real economy of goods and services. Like it's like a leaky bathtub. Like it just gets sucked out, and then it goes somewhere where it can't do any more inflation. These people are acting like uh, that money is like uh, you remember when when Pat Robertson after Hurricane Katrina said that it was punishment from God because of mm-hmm. uh, homosexuality tolerance. Mm-hmm. Like it's like that. Like basically, it's this almost religious thing. This thing that came way later. They're insisting, with absolutely no evidence, has connection to this one thing. And it, it absolutely had nothing to do with demand at all. In fact, like if you look at the consumer price index and what was inflated at like 200, 300% that was driving those inflation numbers up, it was all stuff that is, is basically demand was... Like I can even find you some charts that I can I can DM you that you could even pull up and use. Demand never got higher than it was before the pandemic. Like, there was just that spike in demand. It, it was still below pre-pandemic levels, uh, but it never got higher than it was then when everything reopened. Um, so that was supply chain issues mostly in the beginning. But uh, afterwards, like when inflation started to kick in, it was that kind of price gouging stuff that we were all talking about. And it certainly had no connection to $1,500 checks. It was all stuff that people would have bought anyway that they jacked up the prices on. And what caused those prices to rise? Like, you know, a lot of it was price gouging. Some of it's speculation in commodities markets and, you know, all kinds of other stuff. Uh, but, you know, ultimately, these are needed, not wanted. These aren't things people can cut back on. So... Like, it had nothing to do with how much money was in their pockets. And you can see that by the fact that these people are getting squeezed. Like, higher and higher percentage is going to basic living expenses because of this inflation. Like, all that money went to people, like I said, with negative net wealth. It was gone immediately. Like, this had zero to do with inflation. Yeah. Hit me me with your charts. Give me these charts. I want the charts straight into my DM veins. Chart me. Yeah, as 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 soon as I get off work in a few hours, I will... I will send them like the basically just the one chart that like Warren Mosler uh, was posting that demand even like you can actually correlate it with when he marked on it like when the checks hit and like you don't see any inflation anywhere close to there like you see a brief spike around the Christmas shopping season when that fourteen hundred dollar one dropped the last one that was supposed to be two thousand but uh, you know they moved the goalposts on us and then it was gone like it was. It was just gone. Like, it was out of the economy. It doesn't stay and float around and then cause trouble later. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. So. All right. I appreciate that. Turn me up. Look, Jonathan, I'm going to – I am I have to get off at the two-hour mark. Yeah. And I see that the queue went and got along. It's funny. When we started today, it took a second for the room to fill up, and I thought for sure that this was going to be a quick and simple in and out. And you guys you guys seem to like this time. So thank you, as always, for calling in, Jonathan. I really yeah. appreciate those resources. And I'm going to try to see if I can get all the way down the chain to to Amanda, keep the faith, to Amanda before 4 o'clock. Do you think we can do it? Oh, I'm in Chicago. 5 o'clock for you East Coasters. Dylan, what's on your mind? Do you think we can we can do this in like two minutes? Yo, what's cracking, Brianna? Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> so I'm just going to go on a rant. I uh, live in L.A. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, I did. I wanted to talk to you about LA specific, but not related to the audio tapes that were leaked. Okay. I, I don't really give a shit about those. Um, <laughs> so, what I want to talk about is actually how how uh, how fucked this city is when it comes to the homelessness problem. Because the issue goes far deeper than just, uh, you know, there being a shitload of people out on the streets. Uh So I actually worked uh, in homelessness for the last two years. I first began in the Project Room Key sites that the governor opened up when when COVID hit to put uh, homeless people inside of motels. Uh And then once my my uh, site demobilized i actually transitioned over to homeless outreach but uh for homeless veterans okay and that's where that's where i kind of lost all faith in any of this shit getting fixed really because it's it's deeper than just a financial issue so uh, i don't know if you are aware but a while ago maybe about a year ago now the director of the Homelessness Authority in Los Angeles stepped down. Did you hear about that? No. What okay, happened? So about a year ago, she resigned because uh, she was facing a lot of pushback from upper management uh, because she tried to pay her employees more, uh, <laughs> which, would cut, which would cut into the, into the raises that management was getting. <laughs> LOL. Um, yeah, so, you know, she tried to do the noble thing and advocate for, uh, you know, increased pay for for the case managers and outreach workers, people like me and my colleagues, mm-hmm. because uh, for context, when I was working, uh, I granted I was entry level, but I was still doing like street outreach. I was getting paid 19 bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, so pretty dog shit pay. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, it, it, a lot of people criticize the homelessness issue and they vote for measures that increase funding to, mm-hmm. for these like quote shelters and permanent housing things. But it, that, that's a crock of shit. Most of the money goes to the uh, management that hoards this money. Mm-hmm. So I just want to put it out there. If you vote against these measures to stop, funneling money into the homelessness industrial complex, I do not blame you because mm, that's mm. essentially what it is. Mm. Um, and the cost of living in Los Angeles is so insanely high that like me as someone that was working, you know, I was working full time doing outreach. I was getting, I was making less money than some of the clients I was outreaching on the street. So I was working uh, when I was working for the vet, uh, homeless veterans department, a lot of the veterans, when they get discharged from the military, they get their service connection, which is a form of disability. Um, uh, once they get, if they get, you know, on anything but dishonorable discharge, they can mm-hmm. make up to $3,500 a month untaxed. And I was making half of that shit. Mm. So I was like, Damn, dog, if you can't find, if I can't find a place, like, if you can't find a place for, uh, with that much money under your belt, yeah. and I'm getting paid 19 bucks an hour, both you and me are fucked. I should be asking you for services. <laughs> yeah, my, I, uh, you know, but that's it. You sorry for current affairs. 
she's a friend of mine from law school. She just wrote a memoir, and I read it, and I and I introduced her at one of her book talks, and she was joking because she was working for HUD, and uh-huh. uh, she was supposed to be helping to find low income housing, and she realized that she qualified. <laughs> for yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, I was yeah. like, some of you dudes, some of you dudes are making a shitload of money. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, you, you're making thirty five hundred from, uh, you know, your dis- your veteran disability, but sometimes you're also collecting, you know, like GR or unemployment or insurance or something. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, they make too too much sometimes where they can't get connected to services because they're above like that median threshold that they must fall onto mm-hmm. under to get services. Um, so, you know, they're just kind of in that limbo where, you know, they're not like, like dirt poor, like they're making more money than me, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but they they make enough like for us to not be able to, to help them out. So that's, that's one big component that is really just going to stop the homelessness issue from ever getting fixed in Los Angeles. I'm always speaking for LA I'm not sure how it is in other cities. Mm-hmm. And the second component is, uh, as homelessness uh, service providers, mm-hmm. we we have to abide by what is called the housing first model. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, we had a guest on Rising, uh, two guests actually, who were arguing about this. Um, Lee Fong yeah. was arguing that the housing first model is a problem because so much of the so much of the homeless population is having an addiction crisis, and putting them in the houses doesn't work. They end up they want to be close. This was his argument. But they want to be closer yeah. where the drugs are being sold, so they end up back in the street anyway, or the housing ends up being kind of messed up or attract becoming you know and 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 stuff, you know, the drug den or whatever you want to call it at a certain point. Yeah. And the other guest was a homelessness advocate who was pushing back against Lee, saying that mm-hmm. you shouldn't be arguing against the housing, but the reality is that if you don't actually fund the drug treatment centers, then it becomes inhumane not to want to try the housing first model. And it was I don't know, it was a weird debate. What, what do you think of it all? Um, I mean, I could just speak from, you know, my experience and how I see it. And, you know, I obviously don't have like all these fancy pants, higher degrees that the people have those well, that no, made the housing first models. Yeah. I guess valuable. I don't have experience in the trenches. Yeah. yeah. Um, I personally think it's hindering a lot of, uh, progress that can be made because mm-hmm. the, like the, like the reality is that a lot of people do not want to come to terms with is there is a big amount of homelessness people that um, cannot be housed independently anymore Uh, through years of drug abuse and, you know, untreated mental issues and just that, you know, them, them adapting to the lifestyles of the street, Mm -hmm. putting them, it happens time and time again, you put them in a home and apartment and that same day uh, they get evicted because they trash the place because you know they have psychotic breaks or whatever mm-hmm. and you know sometimes they have sometimes even like you know if they're still more higher functioning they move into a place but they still treat it almost like a tent like they still sleep on the floor they barely mm-hmm. use the oven all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um and as as gnarly as it sounds unfortunately uh it, it sometimes for these individuals it gets to a point where they have to be institutionalized Mm-hmm. But obviously, um, under the housing first model, that is not always the first option that we can give to them, even mm-hmm. though that's quite honestly what they need. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's those two components that are for sure holding back and, and, you know, the, the, the complete corruption, uh, when it comes to Lhasa, those are the two biggest components that are stopping any real progress from being made. And, uh, you know, just the shelter system is also a nightmare. Like a lot of it is used for, uh, like sex trafficking, particularly for homeless women and children. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's why a lot of them. That's why a lot of them refuse to to uh, go to shelters because they feel a lot safer in the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just there's just too many components that are at work for for an increase in budgetary measures to make any meaningful effect. Um, yeah, just wanted to rant about yeah. that because it's pretty gnarly. I I kind of I mean you sound like someone I would love to talk to in more depth about this. The, the debate that was happening between Lee Fong and I'm, I apologize, I don't remember the other guest's name, was fascinating because I do think that I, I in some ways, I mean, they were very much arguing with each other, but it seemed mm-hmm. like they were, they, neither was kind of acknowledging the central problems they would both agree with. Like the, the guy who was arguing first, it wasn't that he wanted, he thought that housing was the best intervention, but it, he just was acknowledging that there's no institutional support for whether it's the people who need to be institutionalized or people who need to have the psychiatric support or drug relief support like those things don't exist so then to be arguing that they shouldn't have that there shouldn't be any effort to get them into a safer shelter situation seems inhumane and lee was like well the making your point about how putting them in the house doesn't solve the underlying problems and they end up getting kicked out of the house anyway and it's a waste of, waste of time and resources isn't wrong but if you're not also arguing for the alternative, then that does sound very cruel. And so it was interesting because I think they both had points, but they were talking past each other. And I, I would love to have a good faith debate about whether or not there's a, you know, a, what the main objection to housing first is. Yeah, uh, I, it's it's definitely a difficult conversation to have because um, not only is there like the rational arguments that go behind it, but also the aesthetics of both sides. Um, you know, the the image of putting a homeless person into a home is much more, uh, was that word, palatable mm-hmm. than the image of institutionalizing a person, whether they actually need it or not. And I think for uh, a lot of people, you know, particularly lefties, I hear for the most part, is that they always go for the more aesthetically pleasing choice, mm-hmm. which is housing these people that cannot uh, safely be housed independently than um, institutionalizing these people. Because, you know, uh, the the option of institutionalizing some of these individuals, you have to forfeit the fact that these people can no longer function by themselves and that we need to override their their self-autonomy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's uh, a, a, lot of, a lot, that's the hill that a lot of people will die on um, is that, you know, no matter how far gone some of these individuals go, they still have their self-autonomy. And that's a point of contention in itself. Like, how much self-autonomy do you have when you're practically a zombie, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what they really yeah. hold on to, whether for better or for worse. Because, you know, if you, do, if you do forfeit the fact that they lose their self-autonomy once they're over the edge, it sets a precedent for other people deciding when someone yeah. loses their self-autonomy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very, it's a difficult, it's very difficult. And it's so frustrating that it's gotten to this point that it's causing people to have really, I don't know, it's like such a political point. It's like a political uh, third rail at this issue. It, it's the kind of thing that needs to be handled with a lot more sensitivity than 
you know, very politicized things get handled. I don't know. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's, I'm so glad you called in and I've made a note to try to uh, do an episode on this issue. Cause I think it was a really good start with the rising segment, but you know, eight minutes is just not enough time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Then Brie, you have a good one. Thank you. You too. We, we said we were going to try Please. to do it in two minutes and we ended up running out the clock <laughs> to be four past, but I'm going to still come to you next, Nick, and see if I can get through just a couple more people. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, so thinking about your radar and the death of the Democratic Party and the, the clip Milhan Omar earlier and some John or um, Andrew's thoughts on uh, on strategy, I just wanted to put forward the suggestion that the common project the left should be engaging in post Bernie is the revival of a U.S. Labor Party. Um, oh. I know there's a serious effort to build one in the, the 90s. Um, I know Adolf Reed was a big part of that, and um, I, I don't know enough about the history. I'd love if he was ever to come on again to mm. um, hear his analysis of what went wrong there and what can what can change. But I feel like we, we are facing different conditions today as, like, you know, in the 90s, labor had been in decline steeply for two decades, but it was really cratering then. And now that we're seeing a bit of an upswing, maybe it would be um, uh, a better time to do it. Uh, but I really feel like the failure of progressive third parties is that they don't have any roots um, in the people mm. that, you know, like the Greens, um, I don't know what they do in between elections. Um, and uh, maybe there are like honest efforts to to do organizing and to build a base in between. But like, I've never heard about it. You know, they're not out there protesting AOC and Ilhan Omar and calling them out or you know, throwing soup on paintings or anything that's getting any attention and would let people know that they, they actually exist. Um, then every other progressive third party I've seen that's trying to enter the electoral realm. Um, all they have are ideas, you know, mm -hmm. they've just, they've got a good platform, but they don't give any reason for anyone to care or trust them. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, um, Labor would be something different because there is an actual base, um, although it's relatively small at the moment, and there are resources. Locals have um, uh, money they can spend and allocate to uh, to campaigns and candidates, and um, I think it would be, um, you know, they, they could more speak to people's daily material issues um, more than the other efforts that we've seen so far. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's so. I, I took the note about Adolf Reed. He definitely should come back, and I would love to talk with him about that as well. It it is an interesting thing that, despite there having been all of this appetite for kind of party building in the past, perhaps because people made efforts in the past that weren't successful, you just don't see you see such a blanket pessimism about there being any alternatives to the Democratic Party today. And so, yeah, I'd love to talk to him about it. I've also reached out, like I said, to Nader again. Um, and, yeah, I, I'm glad you called. Solid, solid points. Good good fodder for me to follow up on. Okay, thanks, Rick. Thanks, Nick. Okay, Thomas, what's on your mind? Why can't I hear you, Thomas? You are unmuted. You're doing everything that you're supposed to do. You're pulling your weight. You've held up your end of the bargain. And yet here we are 
having a real sound of silence moment. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Something, something, something again. <laughs> Thomas. All right, Tom. Oh, wait. Did that work? Nope. I'm sorry, Thomas. I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's happening. But I'm going to move on to Amanda. What's on your mind, Amanda? I've come to talk with you again. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you for that. <laughs> How are you doing? What's on your mind? Just two real super quick things. First yeah, thing, sure. I want to second the recommendation of the Daily Zeitgeist as a show that you would um, do well on and that you would probably like. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to post a link to um, an episode, a really good episode that happened in August with a Native Alaskan professor talking about... Um, saving native languages and also talking about the student debt cancellation issue. Mm. I think that you'll appreciate that particular episode gives you one to kind of listen to other than Oli's. Okay. Um, perfect. Sorry. What, what, uh, this was, sorry, this was the podcast you recommended the, before that Ole had been on. N- yeah. The one that somebody on the, on your last show, the last caller recommended it's called the daily zeitgeist. Right. 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 Yeah. That's a good title. Yeah. And it's, it's, I've been listening to it for probably five years now. And so I said, oh, nice. it's like, the other thing is, um, I, I don't want to get into a big discussion right now, but I want you to think about, I think there needs to be a narrative project on the left to be, to have a narrative ready for the next crisis mm-hmm. to come out and be, and be part of a project like that. That's a small group that could get something core put together and then, uh, you know, I don't know how it would go from there. I'm just saying, I just wanted to put that thought in your head because I think we need to be prepared for the next crisis so we don't waste it. Like education, we should have started something different. We could yeah. have. We Shock doctrine. Not. Shock doctrine yes. for the left. <laughs> yes, please, please. Let's let's take a lesson from that. That's all. That's all I have today. I hope you yeah. enjoy your trip in Chicago. Thank you. Thank you all for, for that. You guys have been so great. Um, I'm realizing now that I, I was told earlier that we have five o'clock dinner reservations and they've been coming in and out of the room looking at me askance, like, what am I doing? So I should probably wrap. I'm so sorry, Thomas. I, I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. But I've got to go. Also, I'm disappointed because I definitely sang the intro <laughs> when I started this episode and apparently none of you could hear it. Um, I won't be singing the outro. I will be trying to find it right now and pull it up. The artist is Quarter Water. The song is I Wish. And I normally speed it up when I play it as the outro music for this. Today, you will be hearing it at real speed. Take care of yourselves. And as always, keep the faith. Wish I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot in a podcast. 
wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars guys. I wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a teeny lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. I wish I was a comedian on late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish the help is life. I wish, I wish. And every time we love it feels just like this. I wish, I wish.